If anarchy is so goddamn great and wonderful, how come it's never been tried before? Episode 128 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. I'm here with the wonderful Keith Preston of attackthesystem.com. He has been on the show twice before on episode 80 and 83. Left our audience hungry for more for almost a whole year. And he's back now to satisfy their hunger. Keith, thanks for being back on the podcast. Good to be back. So almost a year ago, we were at an anarchist conference, the National Anarchist Movement, and you gave a great speech in which you talked about some examples of stateless societies in the past, in the present, and going into the future. And we also talked about that on your previous appearance on the show. I think it was called Actual Anarchy. So one of the things that you started off your talk with was the idea of the state as an aberration. I'm interested in picking that up because obviously most people think, well, look, states are everywhere. Almost every society in the world is a state and those that aren't are kind of like primitive. And surely stateless societies were mostly primitive societies. You know, Bertrand Russell, uh, one of the foremost philosophers of the 20th century, um, at least the, the first half of it, was saying that government was the great advance and that surely world government would be the next advance. So, so, so what's wrong with uh, that kind of thinking, which is not just limited to intellectuals like Bertrand Russell, but probably pretty commonplace? Well, it's certainly true that in primitive societies, the state didn't exist. And, you know, human beings existed in their primitive form for virtually all of their history. We have to remember that uh, anatomically modern humans, people like us, are only a few hundred thousand years old. And the prototypes for our species probably go back to about three million years ago. Uh, so during all that time, uh, humans and their, their ancestors did not have states. Um, now, of course, the comeback to that is usually, well, who wants to go back to that? There are people who are uh, primitivists who do want to go back to that. But if we look at even the history of civilization, if we turn back the clock to five to 10,000 years ago and look at the rise of the early civilizations like Egypt, Babylon, Samaria, some of those, we see that throughout much of human history, even since then, the state has been something of an aberration in the sense that most human beings were still living in the hunter-gatherer stage about 200 years ago. A lot of people don't realize that, but the state was was still an aberration as recently as the Enlightenment era, the early, uh, early 19th century. Uh, and throughout the history of all the ancient civilizations that we've heard about, um, you know, historically, there have been probably about 200 uh, you know, between two to three hundred empires, depending on how you want to find an empire. But we ha we do see situations historically where these empires rise and then they always overextend themselves and fall. You know, that's why none of them exist anymore, except for the American Empire. Uh, but even within that framework, there have always been many, many, many communities, regions, territories, outlying areas, enclaves where the state was largely absent or wasn't really able to exercise much in the way of control. Uh, you mentioned I gave a talk last year at, at NAM, at National Anarchist Movement in, uh, uh, in June of last year. That, that 
talk is actually online still. It's called Anarchist Communities Past, Present, and Future. But in that, I went through a, a huge overview of the many different kinds of anarchist-oriented uh, societies or communities that have existed historically uh, without this overarching structure of the state. Um, everything from uh, utopian religious colonies to uh, indigenous people's communities to pirate vessels to uh, uh, colonies that were set up in remote areas to autonomous or semi-autonomous regions within states. Uh, there's been lots of different kinds of uh, places where the, the tentacles of the state have never really taken root. In fact, even when we look at the history of the state, what we think of as the state really goes back to ancient uh, Samaria, Babylon, Egypt, those civilizations. And what happened was that you had a ruling class that was able to get control of uh, uh, you know, what the Marxists call the means of production, which in that case, in their situation, meant agricultural production, primarily grain and things like that. And then once they were able to get a monopoly over uh, grain production through physical force, basically through conquering and enslaving other people, that's how you see the state rise. You see the, the state rise into this kind of class structure that's based on economic exploitation. And then you have a permanent ruling class that's passed down uh, through heredity over time. And then uh, within that framework, you also see the state creating a means of trying to legitimize itself as a, as, a, as a legitimate institution, as opposed to just a gang of robbers and thieves. And that's how we start to see ideas like the, the emperor god uh, in the ancient world. They would crown the emperor as some, as some kind of god ruler, like the pharaohs, the, the uh, Egyptian pharaohs were thought to be descendants of the sun god, Ra. Uh, you know, as recently as 1945, the Japanese uh, culture had, had practiced this. Uh, you know, even when the monotheist religions became dominant, Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam, uh, even then you've had the idea of the divine right of kings, the king, the emperor, whatever is the uh, God's appointed ruler on earth. Modern states um, try to justify themselves with secular ideologies mm. like uh, the ideas of um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, the, the general will or or, uh, you know, the idea that government is so the state is the manifestation of the society, you know, like the, the Hegelian idea that yes. uh, comes out of Hegel. Uh, you know, but even I would I would argue that the modern totalitarian regimes, like uh, the most obvious contemporary example is North Korea. I'd argue that their system is those systems are really just a, a return to the emperor god idea that you found in ancient societies. So Kim Jong Un, Stalin, Mao, uh, Hitler, those guys are, are really just you know the, the pharaoh or the uh, the Persian emperor or the Roman emperor under another name. Uh, um, you know, even if they're not formally deified, they're they're worshipped as these kinds of you know godlike beings. Uh, but that's still been the aberration historically within that, uh, you, you know, anarchism happens anytime people are involved in voluntary cooperation or voluntary association. So even in very state saturated societies like we have now, where say, I know in America, I think the state consumes something like 40, 40 plus percent of the gross domestic product. And in some other countries, it's even more than that. Um, mm. But even within that framework, we still see a lot of voluntary association, voluntary interaction, voluntary communities and things like that. So all anarchism really is, is, ex is extending the realm of the voluntary. By the way, this definition of anarchism isn't, isn't unique to me. I, uh, I got it from a guy I met about 30 years ago 
this guy named Mel Most. He was this old German anarchist that I met in, uh, in uh, Canada. And he had actually been involved in the classical anarchist movement in the in the early uh, 20th century. In fact, when he was a kid, uh, Emma Goldman had been one of his babysitters. So, hmm. you know, he came right. Uh, he raised to be raised by an anarchist to be an anarchist. Yeah, yeah. But that's basically what that was the definition of anarchism. Yeah, I mean, if we take out this sort of ideological definition of anarchism that we might share, um, I sometimes and just take anarchy as being the absence of government. It has uh, occurred to me sometimes to think, you know, people wonder what anarchy would be like. In a sense, this is it because there are no such states. They are like merely um, marginal, as in they are in people's heads. They are not to use the word of, words of the left, but a social construct. It's just everyone buys into the illusion that there are states. Most of the time, you're um, walking down the street, you have no contact with the state in case, unless some of its hooligans come and interfere you and search you in case you happen to be carrying some contraband. And most of what keeps us in line really is really just um, the social disapproval and pos potentially even violence from other people around us if we kind of don't conform. So the state is an idea that has kind of taken hold. And when did that idea begin to take hold? Well, it depends on what kind of states you're talking about. But um, it, it, again, like I was saying earlier, it, it has its roots in the ancient civilizations in the ancient Near East, what anthropologists call the ancient Near, e Near East, which is uh, Egypt, uh, Babylon, Samaria, those civilizations. When you had, um, for the first time ever, you had uh, static societies. That is, you had right. uh, societies that weren't based on nomads, but which were uh, permanent settlements in which then some settlements managed to militarily conquer others and then essentially enslave them and then consequently got a monopoly on production right. and then cre created a ruling class infrastructure. So is kind of agriculture, the, event the invention of agriculture, a necessary predicate to the existence of states? Well, they had to be able to uh, maintain um, a static system of production. Um, it, it would be difficult to have a state if everybody was a hunter-gatherer. If you had nothing right. but nomadic bands of people that were uh, not dependent on any particular geographical area for their sustenance, their basic survival food and all that, but you just basically went, every, went anywhere you wanted and you know, pick berries and fruit and killed animals and things right. like that for food. Then, then in that kind of situation, it's difficult to have anything that we would recognize as a state. It was only when permanent settlements developed and agricultural, you know, larger scale agricultural production became the norm uh, that the state, as we understand it, became uh, a possible uh, institution. Uh, there are still parts of the world today where industrial civilization and even agricultural civilization of the type we've um, that we're talking about have never taken root. Uh, one example is the uh, in Southeast Asia. There's a very elevated region called Zamia, that's uh, roughly in the area. It's it, it's an area that roughly borders Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, China, some of those areas. 
but it's a very elevated uh, mountainous area, but it's also uh, an agricultural area, but it's not based on large-scale plantation-type agriculture. Uh, so the state has never really been able to been able to take root there. That area, it, it, uh, there's probably about 20 million people that live in that area, but the state has never really been able to take root in that area. There's a, a book about that by a, a political scientist named uh, James Scott, a well-known you know, well political scientist who discusses that. Uh, so yeah, the, the invention of agricultural production and you know plantation-style agricultural production is really what gave rise to the state and the, the earliest uh, civilizations that were state-dominated. Yeah, so people shouldn't be saying, why don't you move to Somalia? They should be saying, why don't you move to Zomia? Uh, right. But um, yeah, it seems to make sense to me that the, I get the fundamental starting point of the state is the ability to tax. Everything else is predicated on the ability to tax. So without a surplus of food, without a surplus of produce, there's nothing to tax. And I, I don't know if slavery um, emerged in the same kind of in the same kind of time period, but it would kind of make sense to me that it did because it's only once a person can produce more than they can consume that you can even consider holding them as a slave. And you know, some will go as far as to say that statism is just sort of, you know, slavery light. Okay, we tax 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever percent of your income. Well, you're that percentage of slave. Well, you're right. Slavery and agriculture and uh, and the state and taxes all emerged at the same right. time. They all, they all emerged in the ancient uh, Mesopotamian civilizations. Uh, and to, because to have one, you really have to have the other. You have to have people who are physically conquered and coerced slaves. Uh, you have to have the capacity for production that you can levy taxes, as you were saying, which required at the agricultural revolution. And then from out of that, you get taxes, you get the class system that's based up on, based on these kinds of economic monopolies. Uh, and that's how the state begins. And then out of that, you have the, a whole uh, mode of thought that emerges from uh, from the state, like the idea of the emperor god, and then later the divine right of kings and things like that. Um, so that's really how the state began. Although it's also true that a lot of ancient societies are, and, and medieval societies are difficult to classify as states in the modern sense. I think what we think of as the state uh, is is something that's that's different from even some of these older states, like some of these ancient empires. Egypt, Babylon, Syria, uh, Rome, Assyria, Rome, uh, Samaria, uh, Persia, they were, uh, they were imperial states in the sense that they had um, uh, a monarch and you know, an absolute monarch. They, tended, they had a state cult. Uh, they had the permanent ruling class uh, that was hereditary. You had monopolies over production. Uh, you had taxes, you had slavery, uh, you had all of that. But it's also true that in a lot of ancient societies, the state didn't really reach into every area of society in the way that it does now. I mean, you, you know, the state wasn't responsible for everything from garbage collection to, to uh, you know, building a park to uh, right. providing everybody with education to, you know, to all the kinds of stuff yeah, in modern states. And you can think, right, you see, even if you are one of these people who accepts some of these functions of the state of the state as legitimate and thinks there should be institutions that are coercively funded to provide such things. Why would you have the same entity responsible for raising money for creating schools 
as for national defense or providing healthcare or providing roads. It's a completely irrational idea. And the only reason why anyone would accept it is because you know, you're born into it. Um, from the outside looking in, you'd go, well, look, if you want to provide your skills, like don't muddy the waters by putting your uh, so-called defense fund in the same pool of resources and then going, okay, well, we taxed all this money. Let's dish this out here, that out here. It's so blatantly open to corruption. And I think it's one of these things where um, these institutions are built the same way that we build our sentences as we talk. It's very interesting. Talking is very different from writing because you say something and then you tack something on to the end of that and you keep on tacking things on until you make sense and finally you get to your point. You're kind of figuring it out as you go along. And in the same way, the state seems to have grown as this like um, Lovecraftian horror with its you know ten imperialist tentacles over here and its um, drug war over here and its or bribing people to vote for it by keeping them poor with welfare programs over here. And it's like, but you just kept on tacking things on and tacking things onto the monster. And the source is this great big hoover of a mouth where it sucks resources out of the economy to build its great big giant tentacles uh, in which it clings to the productive sectors of economy like a parasite and it lives off that and the the more productive the richer societies have become the bigger the state can become because in a poor society if you tax people 10 or 15 percent of their income that means a lot to them and they're going to rebel but once people have an income of 20 30 thousand dollars a year that that tax money doesn't represent a much greater tax rate does not represent such a, a imposition into their liberty. And I think that's one of the ways that we can understand the, the state, the, the growth of the state, especially in the 20th century, but even before that. Yeah, well, the, as I said, the, the ancient states were different from modern states in the sense that not only did the state have uh, fewer functions, but it's also true that the state didn't really have the monopoly on violence that uh, modern states do. That's the two characteristics that really define modern states as they've developed over the past few centuries is, number one, the, the claim of a complete monopoly on violence uh, is one. And uh, that's the definition that comes from Max Stirner, which is gen generally the recognized definition in the political science literature. And then there's also what we call the public administration state, this idea that the state is somehow responsible for regulating or controlling everything or, or providing all kinds of um, services uh, or interfering in every area of life. You know, mo most you know, societies like you and I are familiar with, these you know, Western liberal democracies, the state is involved in you know, virtually every aspect of life, but the state doesn't have complete control either. Now, a 20th century model totalitarian states, the state really does control literally everything. You know, in uh, you know, in North Korea, for example, the state controls the family. The state controls how people dress. The state controls, you know, you know, it's virtually everything. It's a total institution. It's what social scientists call a total institution, which we tend to think of social uh, total institutions as being places like prisons, maybe boot camp in the military. Um, a psychiatric incarceration or something like that but totalitarian states are really about extending that model to the entire society but in the ancient world you tended to have centers of power 
that were, and in the medieval world, that were still in competition with the state. Uh, one example is to look at the history of war. It wasn't until around the 17th century that the state starts to get a monopoly on war with the uh, advent of the, um, with the Treaty of Versailles that came about at the end of the Thirty Years' War. If, uh, if you look at the ancient world, if you look at the medieval world, you see all kinds of groups were fighting wars with each other. Uh, you saw uh, families at war with each other. You saw cities at war with each other, religions, uh, you know, mercenaries, pirates, uh, businesses, all kinds of people went to war. And then, then the state uh, started to get a monopoly on the waging of war, a monopoly on violence. And that created the prototype for these uh, modern states that we have, these all-encompassing modern states. Uh, when, the, when the state started getting a monopoly on war, that accompanied the rise of the absolute monarchies as well. That happened during the same time period, roughly, the, the early modern period, the late Renaissance, early modern period. That's when we start to see the rise of the absolute monarchies and the rise of the modern state. And then that transmits into what we start to see in the 19th and 20th century, which is the rise of the public administration state. And ironically, as the state has become more democratic, like this idea, well, everybody has the right to vote, the public has the right to participate in the state, that kind of thing, that's actually expanded the state even further because it's actually had the effect of creating more constituents for the state. So there's more people that right. want the do more things for them. So that's how we have this kind of, these kinds of all encompassing states that we have today. So it's, uh, it's this very lengthy historical trajectory, but even within that framework, there've been tons of uh, communities and institutions and, and, and um, ways of living that where the state was really not able to exercise much control. In fact, uh, a lot of anarchist theorists, like ranging from uh, say Kropotkin, Peter Kropotkin, who's a hero to the anarcho-communist, to Hans Hermann Hoppe, who's a hero to the anarcho-capitalist, a lot of those you know, thinkers have recognized that ancient forms of government, medieval forms of government, really were not the all-encompassing monopolistic states that we have today. I mean, that's not to say they didn't have their problem. Mm. Slavery and oppression and uh, persecution sure. and things like that. Uh, but the, the modern state, as we understand it, really is a historically unique phenomenon. Right, and I, I think that um, it's no surprise that they bring more people into the franchise because if people feel disenfranchised, they're likely to attack the system, as your website is, is aptly named. But, you know, if you can get a third of people or, um, or either public servants or in receipt or dependent on the state for their livelihood through benefits uh, and another bunch of people uh, who stand to who are very wealthy who stand to gain from being in bed with the government then that's uh, going a long way to making people very very invested in keeping the system as it is even if they have to accept that certain people are disproportionately benefiting from it in the meantime they're benefiting from it enough that they are basically vassals of the state. So um, if we were living in a stateless society and someone came along and said, yo, Keith, Anthony, got this great idea for you. Uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna set up an authority and he's going to mediate all the disputes, but here's the thing, ain't no one else allowed to do it either. And we're gonna get to set this effective tax rate and if you don't like it, well, you might be able to leave. Then again, we might put restrictions on whether you can leave or not. How do you like it? How about it? Are you saying yes? Yeah, well, I think if the question was framed in that way, 
um, most people would probably say no. I mean, most people would probably see that as, you know, the equivalent of when the mafia comes to a particular neighborhood and starts threatening shop owners with uh, with uh, a shakedown efforts, you know, saying, well, look, you know, you be, nice, be, be a shame if your windows got broken. Why don't you give us some money to make sure that doesn't happen? Could uh, I just pause you for a second there? I was on a skiing holiday and I was on the chairlift next to an Italian who told me and my dad that in the south of Italy, if something happens, you don't go to the state, you go to the mafia. Like if you get your bike stolen, no one would go to the police. They'd just go to the local mafia guy. And the next day, your bike will be leaning there towards the wall, against the wall. And he saw this as a problem. I thought that it's just proof positive that the state is actually just the most successful mafia, except for in the south of Italy. In the south of Italy, the mafia is the most successful mafia. Please go on. Yeah, well, there are places like that in the United States as well, where you have street gangs and you know what's what's commonly called organized crime that actually tend to have more influence than the state directly. And yeah, if you you know want something done, that's who you go see. You don't go see your city council person or whomever. Yeah, I think that's true. But um, but yeah, but I do think that the way that the scenario you presented. Um, if it was framed that way, if it was, the question was asked that way, most people would say, no, that's a terrible idea. Why should we give all of our resources to this one group or this one person over here and then have them uh, you know, say they're going to protect us in, re in response and they're going to uh, do all these things for us in response? You know, who's going who's gonna to trust them or who's going uh, to control them? Uh, so when you frame it that way, it does you know, seem like a pretty uh, no-brainer as a question. But it's interesting, though, how you have so many people or most people who have this way of thinking where they, they accept this ideological superstructure that's built up around the state. You know, that, that the, the, the Marxists, uh, I mean, I know most of the people listening to the show aren't Marxist and not, I'm not either, but they actually have an interesting theory on this. Their theory is that when a ruling class always seeks to legitimize itself by creating an ideological framework, a system of ideas that convey legitimacy on those who hold power, whether it's the emperor God, whether it's divine right of kings, whether it's elections, uh, whether it's the dictatorship or the proletariat or the fear of principle or the, you know, some, something like that. Yeah, um, I think these days it's the social contract and you've got all these university professors shifting out justifications for the state. And of course they play the same role today that the church played Yes. Um, in previous yes. centuries, where they're there to come up with theories to legitimate the state. Well, yeah, the, the media, the media and the universities and the educational system generally, they are the modern church. Uh, in, in most liberal democracies, like you and I are familiar with, the church really doesn't have that much influence. I mean, we still have people who are religious believers and we have church institutions, but they're basically just like social clubs. They don't really have that much influence. Uh, in, in terms of on the state and on, on the uh, wider ideological um, orientation of the society, where people get their ideas from is from the media and from the educational system. You, you go to school and you're indoctrinated in the ideas of the state. Now, you know, I know when I was in uh, school in the 70s, I went, I went to private school, but it was the same kind of um, same kind of ideology, you know, you, you put your hand on your heart and say the pledge to the American flag and, you know, and then, uh, and then, you know, and then all throughout you, your life, you go through different institutions where you, you affirm loyalty to the state, you go to court, you, you know, raise your right hand, you promise to, promising the state, you'll tell the truth, things like that. Um, so 
we are inculcated into this uh, system of thinking where the state assumes this aura of legitimacy, and there's this there are these ideas that are used to uh, prop that up. You know, the, the one big one, of course, is democracy. This idea, well, we have elections, right? Anybody that wants to can run for office. Uh, you know, there's more than one candidate on the ballot, so that's freedom, right? That's all you need. Uh, and there are people who actually believe that. You know, there are people, a lot of people who say, well, hey, yeah. that's all you, you've got, right? We've got democracy. I've heard it uh, tons of times. If you don't like the system, why don't you run for office? Right, exactly. Uh, well, in, in most democracies, the the electoral system is actually a plutocracy. I know that's certainly the case in the United States where this was called the investment theory of politics, which um, there was a, a political scientist named Ferguson who demonstrated that the candidate with the most money, I don't mean necessarily the most money personally, but the most money for their political organization is almost always the winner in American politics. It's, there, there are some exceptions, but that's rare. It's 90, not way over 90% of the time. You know, elections are essentially for sale to the candidate with the most money. Uh, and then, uh, and then, in terms of running for office, I know in, the, in our system, the United States, trying to get on the an actual ballot is really an uphill battle in and of itself. You know, that good luck with that. Um, and then, of course, there's the media. The media is probably one of the most powerful institutions in modern societies because they're really the way that they're really the ones that shape the way people think and perceive the world. Uh, just like the, it was the church in past times. Nowadays, it's really the media. I mean, the media is the new the new church. Uh, you know, people probably spend at least as much time with the media as they ever do in any kind of educational institution. So they get this basic uh, inculcation with the ideology of the state from the educational educational system. You know, if they go to public schools or and most of the private schools have, have the same set of ideas. Uh, and then they go to a university and then it's uh, it's amplified still more with this kind of uh, uh, ideo ideology that you get from the university system. And then uh, then that's reinforced throughout the rest of your life through the media. Uh, the media contains this aura of legitimacy on the state. You know, I mean, if the media was really doing their job, you know, reporting uh, on what's going on in the world objectively, they would do nothing but ridicule politicians and public figures. They'd say, look at all these thieves and crooks and robbers and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, uh, and, and they'd find ample evidence to support their accusations as well. Yeah, but in reality, they're very subservient to the state. I mean, for example, uh, in the period leading up to the war in Iraq in uh, 2002, 2003, you had the major newspapers in the United States. I mean, the, the ones that are considered the, the most reputable, most credible ones, like the New York Times, pushing overt state propaganda and 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 lies and, and deception that's you know, more, even back then it, it was you know if you looked hard enough you could see through all of this but now it's you know the overwhelming uh, consensus is that all this was a lot of nonsense uh and yet you had the new york times pushing the kind of line that was uh, that was being pushed back then and, and it still goes on it still goes on like uh, I, I know uh, donald trump uh is very unpopular with a large sector of the american media because he's considered to be something of a maverick within the elite and things like that. You know, he goes off script sometimes, doesn't play the rules, by the rules. They don't like his style. He's considered boorish and all of these kinds of things. But it's interesting how the, the one time that MSNBC, which is a, it's an American television network that is, you know, considered the left, it's considered, it's considered the, you know, like Trump's party is considered the right. And, and the MSNBC is considered the leading uh, media outlet of the left. But the one time they ever actually had anything good to say about Trump was when he started bombing Syria a few years ago. 
right? So absolutely that's... shocking and appalling. And I did a special episode of the um, podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. So that it shows that what the media really is. I mean, the media is there simply to serve as the mouthpiece of the empire of the state, uh, and they may take a liberal or conservative or centrist line on this or that controversial social topic, you know, whether there should be gay marriage or abortion or the death penalty or something like that. But uh, when it comes to actually upholding the interest of the state, they always take the state's line ultimately. Um, and you see that all across the spectrum from, you know, so-called liberal opinion, so-called conservative opinion. It's, it's always that, you know, that's where they always draw the line. They, they're not going to contradict the interest of the state. Yep, they've got a left fist and a right fist, and if they don't get you with one, they'll get you with the other. And they've got a bunch of tricks to start getting people to identify with one of the fists and be like, no, no, this is the good fist. Um, so well, divide, yeah, divide and conquer is the oldest trick in the book when it comes to creating, uh, when it comes to states that try to maintain power. They've always, states have always tried to play off different social groups against each other, uh, you know, whether it's ethnic groups or religious communities or, or uh, cultural groups or, or different political factions or con uh, controversies over uh, social questions or cultural questions or whatever. Uh, it's always about divide and conquer. I mean, you see that, uh, I know it's certainly in American history, it was always about that. And you, and you see that virtually everywhere in the world. Uh, it's it's either, either the state will try to rally the majority of the population by its, to, its, uh, to itself by attacking minorities, or it may do the opposite in some instances. It may try to present itself as the champion of uh, all the minority groups of whatever kind, ethnic, religious, cultural, whatever, against the majority population. Uh, you know, there are, there are plenty of examples of states doing either one, or sometimes both at the same time. Like I know in the, in the United States, I would say the state does the both at the same time. Uh, you know, you have some factions of the state that try to portray themselves as the, you know, with a party of the majority, the, you know, the, the, traditional real Americans and the other side says, well, we're the party of all everybody that's been oppressed or excluded or whatever. Uh, but it's all really just a divide and conquer mechanism. Yeah. And I think one of the appeals of anarchy should be, maybe some people are a bit puritanical and this won't appeal to them because they want to force their way of life on one on others, but that these groups can have autonomy. And one of the problems I see with America is you have at least two big cultures there, the, the culture of the red states and the culture of the blue states, and each is trying to force their way of life down the other's throat. And it creates such virulent hatred that I've often thought, why not split up into smaller units? and you know let the chips fall where they may so to speak but in the long term the society with the better mores is likely to be more successful and we can learn from the example of one another instead of trying to force our way of life down other people's throats yeah, well, it's the same problem as the that happened during the wars of religion during the during the late Middle Ages. Uh, I mentioned the Thirty Years' War earlier. I mean, what that essentially was was Catholics and Protestants striving for supremacy. You know, but I mean, neither the Catholics nor the Protestants were in favor of, say, freedom of religion or freedom of worship or hmm. separation of church and state. You know, they all wanted to be the state church, and you that know, was the. 
So uh, and go on. Yeah. So that was the objective. And what we have now in American politics is something very similar. We have separation of church and state, but we don't have separation of culture and state. So you have all these different cultural factions that are trying to gain hegemony over the state and impose their own ways on everyone else. And you know, the idea of separating all that from the state is unthinkable. It's probably an idea they've never even heard of in many instances. Uh, it's, it's probably as remote to them as say, you know, the idea of separation of church and state would have been the Protestants and Catholics in the 1600s. Uh, so yeah, but that's ultimately what, what it would take to create a kind of uh, civil peace between all the different kind of cultural factions that we have fighting each other today. That's really what it comes down to. They all want to control the state and impose their way on everyone else. Yes, and I think fundamentally there's some holy cows that that as much as everyone on the left and right, broadly speaking, says we believe in democracy, take an issue like abortion, I can't see the left ever saying, well, 51% of people voted against uh, making abortion legal, so that's it settled, I guess and vice versa on the conservative side. So there are certain issues where most people want to impose their, and then there's certain issues that we think maybe they even should. I mean, say like child abuse or something like that. You don't go, well, that's just their children, so we're just gonna let them raise them however they want. And it is a little bit of a gray area. Uh, some, some of these fringes can be a gray area. Yeah, um, well, even among libertarians, even among self-proclaimed anarchists, you do see some of these kinds of uh, dividing lines as well, you know, um, about what constitutes legitimate ownership of property. Uh, among libertarians, abortion is actually a divisive topic. Yes. You have libertarians on both sides of that, and the death penalty, and and, and a number of other, uh, children are another big issue, you know, because there's, you know, there are, there are some anarchists and libertarians who say children should be no different than adults. You know, if children want to run away from home, that's fine. They should be able to do that, you know, or, uh, you know, and then there's other people who have a more, uh, uh, you know, paternalistic view, you know, the idea that no, you know, children are not qualified to be independent. So they're essentially, you know, parents or, or adults are like custodians of children. But, uh, so I, I think these kinds of differences are always going to exist. You know, even without the state, I think they would still exist on some levels. And that's why I tend to be big on uh, autonomy for different kinds of groups with different kinds of mores and different kinds of values. I, I, I generally look at it like, we're, you know, there's probably never going to be a world where everybody agrees on everything. I just don't see that happening. So I tend to look at it like it's better for people who can't go along, get along, to simply separate themselves from each other. You know, I, I could see a world where, you know, even without states, I could see a world where you have some communities that are very, very conservative, very traditional, very religious, something like that. Other places that are very uh, liberal and, uh, you know, cosmopolitan or multicultural and, you know, and, and places where anything goes and things and things where uh, places where, where things are more tightly restricted. Um, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of new forms of identity that people have developed for themselves in more recent times that are becoming more prevalent. You know, the transgender movement is one. You have uh, you have someone like uh, Rachel Dozal, who, who's a white woman who claims to be black. You know, a transracial person. You know, I could actually see forms of identity developing, uh, cultures developing around these kinds of ideas because this is what people have simply formulated for themselves. And there have been things every bit as you know, un unconventional or unusual by our standards that have existed in the past on a fairly uh, significant scale. 
But I do think conflict is always going to be there uh, as far as people having different ways and different belief systems. So I think anarchy, anarchism is a way around that. Um, you know, I, 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 I get, I'm somewhat disdainful of the attitude that some anarchists or some libertarians have, which they say, well, no, you know, we have, we have our own version of what anarchy is and everybody needs to agree with that. So in other words, they want to have anarchist world domination mm -hmm. or something like that. I've heard it uh, described that way. And I, I don't, I think that's a fundamental flaw in their thinking. So I know you often get asked on shows to comment on imperialism and foreign policy. I'm not going to ask you about that uh, principally, but I'm interested in what you think of America as, you know, as in its founding principles uh, and its role in history in general. Uh, um, I know last time you were on, we talked about how there was little pockets of anarchism in America, but just what do you think its role in history has been and are there elements of its founding that you like and how has it lived up to the hype or has it completely failed to do so? Well, uh, I, I would view American history and the place of the United States in, in world history uh, in a way that I, in the, really in the same way I would view the Greco-Roman civilization in the sense that there, there are many things about the ancient Greeks that I certainly admire in terms of their uh, intellectual and cultural achievements, in terms of many of their political achievements. Uh, ancient Greece was a collection of thousands of independent cities, hundreds of different systems of government, very unique system of government or political system that created the infrastructure for developing a very advanced culture for its time uh, and which survived for hundreds of years. Uh, but at the same time, you also had out of the Greek culture, eventually the, the Roman uh, Imperium em emerged out of that over, over a period of centuries. And then Rome became this, what was very advanced for its time. Rome was a very advanced civilization for its time in terms of many of its cultural achievements and technology and things like that. But, you know, but as everybody knows, it was also a very bloodthirsty uh, imperialist empire and, and things like that. It's interesting how America has evolved in an almost uh, almost identical way to the Greco-Roman civilization in that the uh, America started as a collection of colonies up and down the East Coast. It was of the North American continent. It was a lot of people from uh, England or other places trying to uh, find autonomy for themselves. You know, you had religious communities that were escaping religious persecution, and then you had... Uh, people that were just prospectors, economic prospectors, pioneers, and all of that. Um, and then in early colonial America, you know, the American colonies existed for 150 years before independence. You had all these religious uh, utopian communities developed. You had all these frontier towns and pioneer towns. You had the old American West, which was very anarchistic. And of course, let's not forget the indigenous people. I mean, the indigenous people of North America were very decentralized, very localized, very diverse culturally and ethnically among themselves. They had a lot of uh, unique institutions that were somewhat anarchistic in their own right, like the Iroquois Confederation and all of that. So you have the this history where these two cultures meet, you know, the, the, the traditional Native American culture and then the English uh, colonial culture. And it's in a, for a time, it's very anarchistic in many ways. I mean, there was always conflict. There was always slavery. There was always things like that. Uh, but over time, though, you have a situation where the state gains uh, more and more control. Uh, and even though there's a lot of parallel advancements in terms of technology, in terms of economic development and, and, and things like that, 
you also have an empire emerges that emerges that manages to impose itself on most of the world, like Rome did in, it, in its peak. And that's really what the, the United States is today. I mean, the United States is like the modern Rome. Washington, D.C. is the modern Rome. I mean, even the architecture is the same uh, to a large degree. If you go to you know, look at ancient mm-hmm. Roman architecture and look at a uh, American uh, architecture in Washington, D.C., it's very similar architecture, uh, this kind of classical and neoclassical style. Um, so uh, that's really what the United States has become in the modern world. It's become the modern Rome, even though it has its roots in a, a lot of cultural foundations that were very advanced for their times and, and very interesting in many ways. So it's that, that paradox has always mm. been there. And it seems to me that there's these two narratives which are both caricature-ish, one is associated with the left, which is that the US can do no right and has never done any right throughout all history and is only rich because it enslaved and colonialized and uh, pillaged others, you know. And then there's the right wing um, caricature, which is America is a force in the world for good. And it's really hard to look at America's dealings abroad and say that it's been a force for good abroad, but maybe domestically, most of its policies have been superior oftentimes to contemporaries. Do you agree or disagree? Well, well, I certainly agree with the critique of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, U.S. foreign policy has always been very aggressive and very expansionist and very imperialistic, uh, even in the very early years of the Republic, uh, after the American Revolution. In fact, you know, one thing that we Americans don't really get from our educational system uh, is the actual story as to what happened with the American Revolution. You would probably get a, a, more, a more accurate view in the UK system, but what actually happened in the American Revolution is that the Americans wanted to continue to expand westward uh, into the Native American territories. And the, the British government was actually opposed to that because they said uh, it created too many skirmishes with the Native mm. American nations and the, the Americans wanted to do it anyway. And the British said, no, you're not. And that, that, that was a big part of what led to the separation of the colonies from England. And that's something that's not taught in our educational system. And another issue was slavery. Uh, England abolished slavery before we did. Uh, there was a, a landmark court case in, in uh, Britain in uh, 1772, the Somerset case, which uh, essentially declared slavery unlawful under under common law. And I think a lot of slave-owning interest in the American colonies looked at it like the writing was on the wall. Mm. We better get out of here before they come, after, come for our slaves. Uh, so that's an issue. But so America has always had this paradoxical identity in the sense of being a very aggressive, expansionist, uh, imperialistic, um, uh, empire-building nation. Uh, and one, one of the former presidents, Jimmy Carter, recently came out and, and admitted to that. Uh, at the same time, it's also produced quite a bit in terms of economic development, technology, things like that. We think about how many modern technological inventions came out of the United States or were produced by American inventors, uh, or, or you know, largely by, or in a, in a big way by American inventors. The automobile. Uh, uh, Things like telephone, the telegraph, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that we take for granted today, technological devices and stuff, were are largely American inventions. Some of some of them are, came from other places, but Americans played a big role in the development of what we consider modern civilization. Uh, so, but again, it, it was the same way with the Greeks and the Romans. The Greeks, even in their culture, they practiced slavery. Uh, you know, they, they engaged in religious persecution. Remember, they executed Socrates. 
you know, the status of women in ancient Greece was about like what it is in Saudi Arabia or the, the Taliban today. That's something that's not widely known. Uh, but, you know, but they also achieved quite a few things uh, for their time. Uh, and then, you know, I, but on the, you know, the, the Romans came along and piggybacked on that and created this, you know, they, they created this cultural foundation that the Greeks had established. They took that and made it into the basis of this very aggressive, bloodthirsty empire. And that's largely what America has become as well. It's become this modern, the modern Rome that's based on this kind of classical enlightenment influence civilization that emerged in the 17 and, uh, and then the 16 and 17 and 1800s. Okay, I want to touch on a couple of things that we didn't quite reach in our last installment um, since we've got a little bit of time left and people might like some examples. We talked about a bunch of examples in our last but we missed some of the most famous examples. I want to talk about medieval Iceland and Ireland or rather I want you to tell people a little bit about them so that we can ground some of this on how anarchism worked for a period of quite a long time in two large geographical areas. Yeah, on the islands of Ireland and, and Iceland, uh, those were basically anarchistic or quasi-anarchistic uh, civilizations that existed for centuries. Uh, and they had no central government. Uh, their method of settling, settling disputes was polycentric, which means that you don't have one person or group that has a monopoly on the settling of disputes. Rather, you have a polycentric system where there's multiple centers of con what we call today, we call conflict resolution or dispute resolution. Like the systems we're familiar with, let's say you have an argument with somebody, a crime gets committed or, you know, somebody runs into your car or something like that. Well, the automatic solution is you go to court and then the court has a monopoly over law, over the compulsion, over the uh, institution of force and you go to court and whatever the judge or jury says is the law is pretty much what, you know, the way it goes. Uh, in Ireland and Iceland and those medieval uh, civilizations that were anarchistic or at least polycentric, uh, polycentric is probably a better term than, than, um, than anarchistic because, for example, the, uh, the uh, Icelanders did have a legislature that was called the All Thing, but you didn't have a monopoly of over, over compulsion and enforcement. Um, you know, you, you imagine if we had competing court systems and competing legal systems the way we have competing businesses. Like uh, if you, uh, like, like a lot of people won't like this example, but say fast food restaurants, okay, you can go to McDonald's or Burger King or KFC or, you know, uh, whatever the, the equivalent is in uh, the UK, probably some, some of the same ones. But, uh, all right, so if you want to go and get lunch, you can go to any of those places, all right? So let's say if you had a legal issue, you had your choice. You could go to any, uh, this, this or that legal institution and say, hey, you know, uh, what McDonald's or whatever, uh, legal services, I've got an issue with this guy over here who ramrodded my car or whatever, or this guy robbed my house or whatever. All right. Um, and then let's say that, uh, so the, the, that legal system you went to that they went that, and told this guy, okay, look, you're in some trouble here. You've, uh, robbed this guy's house. What are you going to do about it? So he would go to his legal system and say, well, look, you know, uh, these folks over here are accusing me of robbing house, you know, can you help me out? So, uh, and then out of that, there would have to be some kind of agreement worked out by the competing legal systems about how they're going to resolve this. If they can't resolve it, they might bring in a third legal system or, or arbiter or judge or panel or jury or something to, uh, to, to negotiate some kind of settlement. Uh, 
Uh, so that's that's a very simplistic but rough definition of how the legal systems and legal systems of, of Ireland and Iceland worked. They were they were very similar to each other. They had different terms and things like that. These these Celtic terms that you know we, today we wouldn't even know how to pronounce. But uh, but uh, that, that you had a, an absence of a monopoly on compulsion. That was really the the main characteristics of them. And you you, you even find aspects of this in, in other civilizations that were much larger. Um, you know, even the Holy Roman Empire, which rules, um, it, it, the Holy Roman Empire existed in Central Europe for about a thousand years, from roughly the time of Charlemagne up through the time of Napoleon. And it, you, while it did, was technically it had a central government, it, it did have the emperor. The emperor was really just a figurehead. What you really had was this kind of bizarre network of all sorts of uh, localized kingdoms and fiefdoms and principalities and statelets and free cities and territories. And, and then the church had its own uh, communities and, and you had the guilds and all kinds of other institutions. And again, this was a polycentric system where there's no one monopoly over the production of law. There's no one monopoly over the resolution of justice or whatever you want to call it. Instead, you had different kinds of groups with their own internal laws, often in comp competition with each other, which meant that there was a conflict between the two. They'd have to have some kind of uh, mediated uh, settlement between them or go to a third or fourth party or something like that. Um, and there's been plenty of uh, prototypes for these kinds of systems in many different kinds of societies. So the idea that you have to have some sort of institution mm. monopoly on violence uh, and which has a, a final authority about everything is not something that is necessarily the norm from a historical perspective. It's what we're uh, familiar with, but it's not necessarily the norm. As we were saying earlier, the state is really an aberration. So um, is it true that even the law in England, the common law was arrived at by courts that were independent of the state and then the institution of law was assimilated by the state and now everyone thinks that law and states go together. Yeah, well, English common law largely evolved as a system of what today would be called private law. Uh, and we can still see parallels to this in various parts of the world um, or, or different kinds of um, legal systems. Uh, one might be admiralty law, like the law of the seas. Traditional merchant law was another one. Uh, we still see remnants of this, but yeah, in, in uh, England you had a system where the common law developed through a largely through a system of non-state courts, and the reason why is because the state really didn't have the resources to exercise absolute control over all kinds of, you know, over every community within the realm within the kingdom. So you would have. Uh, communities that would create their own means of settling these kinds of disputes. So you would have somebody who was considered the judge, you know, appointed because they're a respected figure or something like that. They become a judge of a common law court. And so you had somebody that comes to court because this other person stole their chickens or something like that. Um, and so they have to work out some kind of settlement. And then you actually had traveling judges. You actually had judges that would travel from town to town or village to village because they were considered experts on the common law. Uh, and then they would, you know, give their services to this community that had some kind of resolution over, well, who gets this parcel of land or something like that. Uh, and out of that, out of all these cases, you had a, what, what was called the common law, which today is, we call, is called case law. It's in the United States, it's called case law. 
but it's basically just law based on precedent. Okay, well, what was the last case we had that was like this? What did we decide then? All right, so let's let's use that as the precedent and go for that. That's that's basically what case law is. So common law developed developed in that same way out of these systems of non-state courts, and then eventually the state, the British state, you know, co-opted that really and, and incorporated that into the laws of the state. And just it's it's the same way in the United States. I mean, in the United States. Uh, you know, a lot of our law is based on English common law, which was d developed into colonial law, which was largely incorporated into the court systems of the state as the state started to become more expansive. Yeah, I tend to think that what states do is they co-opt already existing institutions and make them worse. Like, um, and then people think, oh, how would we have that without the without the government? But actually, they're just kind of parasitic on trends if you look at things examples like uh, workplace safety regulations if you look at the the graph workplace deaths were already going down and then they brought in OSHA they continued to go down and they go oh look we solved workplace deaths or the abolition of child uh, child labor I can't remember if it was in England or in America now but I think 95% of it had already gone before they made it illegal. And then the state goes, oh, look, we solved that. Um, you know, I think here the NHS, the National Health Service, is the expression of a genuine impulse amongst people to want to make sure that people have access to healthcare. And with the amount of resources they spend on it, everyone could have that access, except for if it were not for the state co-opting that, the welfare state before that, we had friendly societies who fulfilled the role of a welfare state. They don't exist anymore because they've put, been put out of business by the state. And I think it's just an unfortunate thing which states seek to masquerade as society. And once the two are wrapped around each other in the public perception, people can't see the difference between the state and society and therefore the trek is complete. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, if you look at any kind of movements for any kind of social improvement, you typically see that they don't really begin with the state. Uh, if you look at, uh, for instance, the movement in the United States to abolish slavery, uh, you know, slavery abolition was largely started by runaway slaves or by sympathizers with runaway slaves. It wasn't until later that the state uh, moved in and said, okay, well, now we're going to pose as the liberator of slaves and, and all these kinds of things. Uh, you mentioned workers, historic labor movement, the same thing. I mean, in the early years of the labor movement in the United States, the state was not on the side of workers. The state was would send out state militias to shoot workers that were picketing and things like that. Uh, it was only after through a combination of, of, of struggle, union struggles and things like that, as well as things like technological and economic development that had a lot to do with it too, because you know it made things like you know workplace safety more viable from a technological perspective or whatever. So that that played a role. Um, but you, then you start to see the state actually co-opting these kinds of things and say, okay, we've, we've got all these mass labor organizations, unions or whatever. So how are we going to bring those into the state now? Which is yes. what they do. Yes, yeah. that, that um, is what they do. Yeah, and it works the same way with everything. It's it's happened with the same kinds of movements that came out of the '60s. If you had a you know they had movements that emerged in the 1960s in Western countries, you know, civil rights for ethnic minorities, gay rights, things like that. 
those started out on the margins. You know, the state was not in, in favor of those things, or at least, you know, it, was, it depends on the political context. But, you know, I mean, how did the gay rights movement start in America? It was a, it was a, a brawl in a bar between some gay people and the cops who did a raid on a gay bar. You know, nowadays, that the, now that the gay rights movement has become successful and popular, the state has actually incorporated that into its own ideological superstructure. And at one point, some of the Federal Reserve buildings in the United States were actually flying a rainbow flag. So you had the, the institutions of the central bank of the state flying the rainbow flag, you know, basically indicating, yeah, we co-opted this movement and brought it into the state now. Indeed. Um, so before we go, what is the future of anarchy as far as you can predict it? What do you see? What are people's options and what may happen? Uh, well, it's interesting to see how um, power, I think, is becoming more and more concentrated on a global level on one hand, even as the traditional state system is breaking down. I think we started, we're starting to see a lot of nation states of the kinds that emerged in the Enlightenment period. You know, what we think of as the nation state, that is a, a state that has a monopoly over a geographical territory, and then that territory is identified with that state. That's actually a modern concept as well. It comes out of, I guess it has its beginnings in the French Revolution and then in 19th century, 20th century nationalism. But the nation state system is breaking down and more and more uh, power is being transferred to transnational entities, you know, whether it's the European Union, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's NGOs, whether it's transnational corporations and you know, international banking institutions and all of these kinds of things. So those are really becoming the centers of power. Uh, and power in that sense is being concentrated on a global scale to an ever greater degree. At the same time, you also see a lot of fragmentation. You see a lot of uh, uh, states breaking down. You see what military theorists call fourth generation warfare uh, institutions developing, which are non-state actors that are acting in opposition to states. Uh, so we see that as well. So I think that's really going to be the main conflict in the future. I think in the future, we're going to see power on one hand trying to become more concentrated globally. Like you were talking about how um, there were people, there were thinkers in the past who thought, well, the idea of a world government or whatever would be awesome. And, you know, you had people say, and, and, but we're, we're moving more towards something like that. We're moving towards, if not a formal world government, a kind of global empire that where international institutions are really the centers of authority and the you know the interaction of these international institutions with each other is really the the, you know, the new ruling class or whatever uh, at the same time all over the world you see you know, different kinds of communities and institutions and forces uh, emerging that are opposed to this as well you also see a lot of failed states uh, you see places like Libya and, uh, and other places that have become failed states um, so that's going to be the the basis of conflict uh, and eventually you know the global imperial system will collapse and fade I mean all empires hundreds of empires that have existed in the past have collapsed and fade, faded away so the, the global system will collapse and fade away eventually and then the big question is what comes after that and I think it's really a matter of creating the cultural and intellectual infrastructure for a new kind of approach to civilization and that is one where we take all these ideas we've been talking about and how do we go about popularizing or promoting these kinds of ideas how do we go about debunking the idea that we've got to have the state to have all these kinds of things you know consider most ideas about government that people had in the past most people today don't really take seriously like in, in, certainly in the developed countries, but even a lot of other places, 
there's not that many people who seriously think we should have an absolute monarchy or think that the emperor should be worshipped as a god or who believe in a theocracy or who believe in the divine right of kings or believe we should have a titled, you know, a genuine titled hereditary aristocracy with, you know, that kind of entrenched power. Ideas like fascism, Nazism, military dictatorship, there's not that many people who take that seriously. Communism is largely being discredited by experience as well. Uh, the, the, uh, so that really only leaves what we think of as this kind of liberal democracy. You know, we think this, there's this idea we have that as long as we have elections, that's all we need. Mm -hmm. you know, other than that, the state is fine. You know, so debunking yeah. that yeah. idea, I think, is really the core idea. I tend to focus on that a lot because I think this idea of debunking the idea that democratic states are somehow more legitimate than any other kind is, is, a, is a central idea if we want to push the anarchist idea. Uh, and also, uh, Pointing out the the alternatives, pointing out the fact that you know these kind of, that what we think of this of as the state is a historical aberration, uh, and even today around the world, there's plenty of examples of communities that manage to function uh, outside the state fairly successfully. So it's delegitimizing this institution. You know, it's the it's the idea that well the state's going to go away because nobody really takes it seriously anymore. You know, it's like uh, you know the way mili the military draft in the United States. You know, we had that for a long time. It was ended 45 years ago, 46 years ago, and the main reason it was ended is because people just stopped complying with it. There was just so much opposition to it that people would go to jail rather than be drafted, or they go to uh, leave the country rather than be drafted, or whatever. Uh, then the Vietnam War was going on. And that's why the, the draft was ended because well, through mass non-compliance for the most part. Uh, and uh, same thing with uh, the, the racial segregation system we had in the United States back then. It was, uh, that ended largely through non-compliance. Um, and that, that's really how the state would end. The state went in through just non-compliance. Like, well, no, we don't, we're just not gonna pay taxes anymore. And yeah. enough people say, if enough people say that, the state can't do anything about it. Right, and we can but hope that in the future, they will look back on the state the same way as we look back on slavery now as a moral failing that we somehow managed to overcome. So there was a decentralized society or many of them in the past, and hopefully that will be a feature of the future. I think some of the things we've got going on our side is like the decentralization of communication and uh, being able to encrypt our messages and then of course bitcoin uh, if that technology to trade without being traced can proliferate then the state does lose the ability to tax and by losing the ability to tax well i guess they'll need to send their foot soldiers to your house and just take your stuff which isn't beyond them but it's much harder to legitimate than this um tax which you know you, you supposedly agreed to by voting yes yeah um well one thing that's interesting about the internet is that it has i think fueled this process in the sense that today you have all of these different kinds of microcultures that are developing on the internet and this is again this is something that's consistent with fourth generation warfare theory fourth generation warfare theory says that wars between states are becoming less common and now it's more states against non-state actors. Mm. And in the process, more and more people 
are transferring their loyalties away from their particular state towards some kind of micro community or non-state entity or something like that. And, and, and even with uh, in, in American politics, while it's true that you have two groups, two, two major groups, the Reds and the Blues, who don't really question the legitimacy of the state. They're trying to fight for their control over the state. It's also true that they are largely fragmenting off into their own tribes, you know, their own micro communities where their loyalty is to their own, you know, their, you know the loyalty of vegans is to the vegan tribe, mm. not to the American government, you know, or uh, in fact, I was t- talking to someone I know recently who was a very devout, you know, red state, red tribe, Republican voter. And, and uh, I said, well, it's interesting how the Democrats and Republicans have started to view each other as really the equivalent of enemy nations and, and you know, existential enemies. And, and, uh, and she said, yeah, that's kind of how I view the Democrats. It's, you know, it's, uh, mm. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, no, I, I don't think enmity for its own sake is, is a good thing. I, I don't, really think, I don't think to just outgroup hatred for its own sake is a good thing, but it does show how, and it, you, know, you see this in all different kinds of context. You see how loyalty to these, to the nation state is declining. And all these microcultures and micro tribes and things like that are developing, and a lot of that is happening online. Uh, you know, a lot of these political subcultures have developed online. You know, the the alt right, the social justice warriors, the 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 the, uh, the gamers, the MRAs. You know, I mean, some of them are political, and some of them are something else. Um, but uh, but all of the technology, I think, is fueling all that, and it's made made it possible for people to interact on an international and global scale as well. Like you and I would have been doing this pr- program 20 years ago because there was no technology for it. Um, and so you have these two anarchist guys that are, you know, thousands of miles away from each other communicating. Um, and, uh, and we're starting to see that on a, on a global scale as well. You know, people who have some common interest or identity forming a tribe that's not necessarily a territorially contagious uh, tribe instead it's you know the tribe extends across continents you know in, but it's still a micro tribe because it's it's maybe a fairly narrow form of identity keith i'm sure we could talk for another hour but i think we've come to the end of our time today so thank you so much for joining me for the third time if you like this check out the previous episodes 80 and 83 and until next time and uh, thanks very much for joining us on the show would you like to plug your any specific book or resources? Uh, just go to the website, attackthesystem.com, and you'll find a lot of my writings and books and podcasts and stuff like that. Or just Google my name. You can uh, find all kinds of stuff about me on the Internet, including what my enemies and critics say about me. Check that stuff out, too. Some of that's funny. Great. Thanks very much, Keith. Until next time.